Welcome to Day Live By Film, a film discussion podcast focusing on the Criterion channel and beyond. My name is Adam Lundy, and I'm joined by my co-hosts Chris Haskell and Zach Bryant. How are you doing today, guys? Happy New Year. Happy New Year. How's everybody doing? All good. Feliz New Year. I don't know the Spanish for New Year, so Feliz New Year. So uh, this is the third episode of the series. Uh, We are going to be talking about uh, two films, one short film and one feature film, as well as doing our regular collection corner and any other business at the end. Uh, The first film that we are talking about is the Agnes Varda uh, documentary that came out in 1968 uh, called Black Panthers, not to be confused with the Marvel movie, which I'm sure if you search for Black Panther, you'll find that. Uh, This is Black Panthers, plural, (laughs) So, guys, what do we think of this film? Uh, I'm going to start with you, Zach, for a change. We normally start with Chris, so I'm going to start with you, Zach. All the pressure on me. Um, Generally, I I liked it. Um, I do kind of feel like it's putting a ton of information into 30 minutes, and it does a good job of that. Um, Almost feels like it needs to be a little bit more expanded because it it focuses a lot on the um, Huey. I'm trying to think of his last name. Yeah. Uh, focus a lot on him and that stuff's interesting um and as a snapshot i think it's a pretty well put together i love the editing of the whole thing um it's just one of those things that almost feels like a prototype and i just wanted a little bit more but i thought it was really well put together and i enjoyed the um the short documentary altogether uh yeah i um you know it's interesting i growing up kind of in and out of the u.s i did a lot of u.s history when i was here mostly here for middle school i was outside of the country beyond that but you know none of my friends that i spoke to and and i certainly never had any real like in-depth discussion of the black panther party growing up even though it was such a major part of the the history and so to get kind of a unblemished like you know maybe foreign perspective kind of like outsiders in perspective and a little bit more of an objective viewpoint into like a a super peaceful protest really from a highly intellectual group i thought was I loved it. I mean, like that, you know, I, I don't know what my perception of the Black Panther Party was, but it's certainly more anecdotally. I, I remember it kind of I, I have a vibe of it being a little bit more militant and like that's not really what came across. They were incredibly educated there. They were like, you know, deep ties into Mao Zedong and like a lot of kind of, you know, Eastern sort of philosophy and, and socialism and like and the equality of the genders that came up in the movie that was like so uh, so so prevalent in the party. like. I didn't know any of that. So, you know, I agree. I see what you're saying, Zach. Like, I wish it was longer. Uh, totally. I could have watched another hour of that easily. Um, but I just, you know, ironically, in the same way that Marvel's Black Panther is sort of a representation, like a like a positive cultural representation for, for young, you know, black children in America to have like a hero represented. I, I thought it kind of had a similar effect. It was kind of cool to see this like highly intellectual, educated group of protesters saying like, hey, this Huey Newton dude was was processed without you know due process of the law like this isn't right um so yeah i, I thought it was it was great it was interesting i'm kind of in the same boat then as you chris i i knew i, I knew of the black panthers i knew that they were um like a political movement but obviously in ireland you know it's not something that we would we would ever hear to hear of in fact you know racial issues and racial tensions has never really even been a major problem in ireland literally up until this week when we had our own sort yeah. of police shooting of, a, of an unarmed black man. Well, I say unarmed, he actually did have a knife, but I'm not going to get too much into that because obviously it's still very fresh and there's a lot of conflicting information about what actually went on. But that was a major thing in Ireland this week. Um, so it was kind of intriguing that, this, that I watched this just beforehand because obviously like coming from an Irish perspective, I, I don't want to really talk too much about, you know, what's happening in the US because I just I can't really experience it firsthand. I can't really talk about it firsthand. You see what's in the media. I don't really want to, um, you know, I don't want to bring conjecture into it. But I found the documentary really interesting. It was something in a part of history that I never really knew a whole lot about. I knew the Black Panthers existed, but I didn't know what what they were actually about, you know, what I didn't realize they were you say they're not very militant but they they are to a degree um I, i'm not saying militant from the point where they're trying to cause a coup or anything like that but um you know they're very you know they follow their leaders they they have sort of ranks they have mm-hmm. things that they go through you know 
to be at the top of the sort of Black Panthers. So that was one thing that was really interesting. The gender gender equality aspect was really interesting, especially this is 1968. So, you know, wasn't a whole lot of gender equality at the time. It was a little bit better than in the 50s, but still it wasn't it wasn't exactly like it is now. So seeing the women in the Black Panther movement being treated with just as much respect as the men was was really really interesting they were definitely very forward thinking i i don't agree with absolutely everything they said you know there was there was that guy i don't know if it ever actually said his name in the documentary but he was basically listing off all the things mm. the black panthers want yep. like there was a couple of things in there i didn't agree with like the release of every single black man from prison regardless of if he's committed actually any crimes i didn't that kind of didn't sit with me that kind of you know i thought what's that's not really going to help anyone is it um, so I didn't agree with absolutely everything they said, but the whole sort of snapshot of the movement, you know, in, I believe it was in San Francisco is where, or sorry, Oakland, Oakland, just, just, just across the bay. Yeah. So Oakland, where pretty much this part takes place around the, the Huey Newton uh, incarceration. I found it interesting in a degree because I obviously it was, it was cool to see a snapshot of the era, what was going on. And I agree with both of you. I definitely would have liked it to be a little bit longer because I would have liked to know a bit more about the Black Panthers, you know, their history, how they formed, what happened after this. Obviously, I know this is obviously pretty much shot in real time. Um, so it's obviously Varda could not tell the future. As a magnificent as Agnes Varda was, she unfortunately <laughs> was not a clairvoyant, so she couldn't tell us what happened next. But um, I would have liked to have learned a little bit more about their history because it did definitely seem to be more about a snapshot of this one particular event in this one particular city rather than a wider documentary about the organization as as a whole, if that makes sense. And while I, I, I do I do criticize the length, I mean, not in a negative way, it's almost a backhanded compliment. One thing you kind of touched on a little bit, Adam, was um, the narrative of media, of news and stuff. And I think the reason these type of films, these even these short documentaries or longer documentaries are so fascinating is they almost have a different uh, objective, I guess is the word to use than something like even media back in 1968, you know, hot, you know, Vietnam war at the time, there's a lot of criticism of the media and how things were handled. Even today, the same sort of thing happens. A lot of criticism of the media, how things are handled. And it's kind of, remind you know when i watched it, it does kind of give this reminder of how important these short documentaries these longer documentaries are which is in a way its own irony that's something that's supposed to be pushing a narrative or not pushing a narrative but you know having a narrative structure almost can seem a little bit more beneficial than something in a more media sense that of the mainstream media of the news and stuff like that yeah, speaking of that, I'm kind of curious, you know, Adam, tell me if this is an off-topic thing here. Uh, I hope it's not, you know, I, I, but I was living in England, I remember in the, in the early 90s, and, you know, the way that the IRA was portrayed, I felt like, looking back on it now, I felt like it might have been unfair, because, you know, the media was obviously pretty heavily biased in one direction in that sort of debate between Northern Ireland and, and Ireland. Do you, do you see any similarities in some of the racial movements here, and maybe some of the some of the stuff that's going on in Ireland more politically and kind of, I don't know, religiously. I know that was, that was at least religious on the surface, but I'm sure that wasn't all of it. Yes, I know. It's, it's kind of interesting to bring this up because uh, in college at the moment, I'm, I'm studying W.E.B. Yeats, who was kind of, uh, he was obviously an Irish poet for those who don't know, but he was very much a guy who supported nationalism and his poetry stirred nationalism. And then he kind of regretted it afterwards after seeing what happened because of his nationalism. So, uh, it's interesting. I was just reading up about this earlier today. Like yes and no with the IRA because at the end of the day, the IRA were terrorists. You know, I, I, I wasn't. It wasn't shown in the documentary, and I didn't see anything in my reading about the Black Panthers going up and blowing up stuff or, mm-hmm. or murdering innocents. The IRA at the end of the day were were terrorists. They made. They obviously started with a righteous cause of Irish independence and you know getting a united Ireland. You know, seceding from the north. Um, I say seceding from the north, but not not in the American sense. Uh, I mean, I mean, getting rid of Northern Ireland and having a, a united island of Ireland. Um, yeah. 
obviously it started as a very righteous cause and then it just descended into just blatant terrorism. So I don't think any level-headed person in Ireland today will look kindly on the IRA if you if if they are you're you're talking about a essentially a a, a very very nationalist uh, very republicanized person um but no level-headed person in Ireland today is going to say the IRA they were a great bunch of lads because <laughs> they weren't you know they were they were especially at the start yes maybe they were they were they were fighting for a good cause but after the Irish from the Irish civil war onwards no they were just terrorists it's interesting a lot of these movements kind of happen with they start with the youth right like I, I and I need to be really careful here because I, I I already said it my ignorance towards the Black Panther Party but like I just finished watching Hamilton and like you know I didn't realize as I was kind of digging into the history of the US like I didn't realize a lot of the people in the Constitutional Convention were like early teens like teenagers and early teens and like like it was like a young group of kids that like that led a lot of what America was kind of founded on and I think like when I when you know just going through different revolutions that I've been a part of like I was living in Indonesia in 1998 and there was a big like upheaval of the government we had to like we had five hours to evacuate the country because they were targeting Americans. Like there was this big sort of revolution and like that was from the youth as well. And I just feel like there's this kind of excitement and passion that comes from, from the youth and a lot of these movements. And that's one thing I felt like was fun about the, the, the documentary for me was like, you know, there was this discussion about the natural hair movement. They kept talking about natural hair yeah. and it was like redefining beauty for, for black American women. Uh, and that's awesome. Like, why not? Like, like, why not be proud? Like, the hair was amazing. Like, when they had the afros, like, combed out, it was beautiful. And, like, you know, anyways, like, just, just stuff like that. That, you know, it's it's probably, like, I imagine in the moment you get sucked into that. And uh, it, it's just really fun to be a part of those movements. Yeah, I, lo- I love that segment with the, where they were talking about the, nat- the naturalized hair. That's, that that was great. I, I love that entire segment. Like I said, like, to not, to try and, to try and not sort of set themselves by the standards of white people. To instead, yeah. you know, instead of instead of like, you know, putting their hairs in braids or straightening hair or wearing wigs or whatever, just just go natural and, you know, go go at what, you know, comes natural to to you as a you know in your race and, and to your people and and let that be the the standard of beauty that you set yourself up to Re, redefine the the standard of beauty that you set yourself to. Yeah. So that was definitely that was definitely a cool segment, in terms of like the from a technical aspect i'm not really going to talk obviously the themes are, are heavy uh, but from a technical aspect i love the way this this was filmed uh, i don't really know too much about the technical aspect of what kind of camera they was used or what kind of film there was but just the, the grain of the film and uh, and the colors it looked really really nice to look at i don't know if you if if you guys it had to be 16 mil um i don't yeah. know if it said it or not but it, it had to be a 16 mil camera I suppose even from the from the mobility aspect is obviously they were pretty much out in parks and on streets and stuff that would make sense but yeah the film just just had this look that i really really I just loved looking at it even though the themes obviously were very important i'm sure a lot of people get sucked into that uh, i loved looking at the film i thought it looked really really great even for a documentary which obviously you don't normally talk about the cinematography of a documentary is not really the, the aspects you speak about but i thought this film looked really great um I suppose the only thing which I, I brought up and I think a few other people have sort of agreed until I realized that there was in fact closed captions, but the Xbox app for the Criterion channel doesn't actually give you closed captions was obviously the scenes where it was like mm-hmm. filming them giving speeches and stuff. Did you guys manage to get closed captions for those? I was on my laptop and mine had it. Um, oh. I don't know if PS4 even has an app, but my computer did it, but yeah. I don't know about Xbox. You were the same, Chris. You were able to get subtitles. I did, I did. yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think I need to go back and rewatch it on my laptop then, because the Xbox app, even though it let me say yes for closed captions, none actually showed up. Uh, like the Xbox app is pretty buggy as hell anyway. It's still pretty new, um. So I'll give them the benefit of the doubt. But I think I need to go rewatch it. Just those the speeches they had, even though I couldn't really tell what they were saying because of the recording quality, the passion, you know with what they were saying I, I really want to know what they were talking about because i feel like it's for just from the way they're speaking it's it's important honestly uh, yeah i think even the iphone app has it so even if i think i watched it uh streaming from my iphone onto like streaming under the tv 
uh, and I had captions. So if you get a chance, it's worth it. It's not that long either. It's <laughs> not a big commitment. Yeah, well, that's 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 the thing, you know. It's it's one of those films I can just easily go back and rewatch. I thought you were going to say you watched it on your phone, and I was afraid of like David Lynch just going to pop just, it behind you. <laughs> the ghost of David, well, not the ghost. He's still alive, but whatever. The spirit um, of David Lynch just comes spirit, through your yeah. your window and just kills you for watching <laughs> yeah, it on your on your telephone, as he would say. <laughs> um, I, I I do have a question for y'all. How familiar are y'all with with Varda going into this, or how familiar were you going into this? Zero. Yeah, me too. Okay. Oh, really? Neither of you had ever seen a Varda film? Nope. Oh, that's super. I've only seen two now, so I'm, I'm already a, a master compared to you yeah, guys. Yeah, you're an expert. <laughs> uh, but no, I've, I've seen two of her features. I, this is my first Varda documentary, but I've seen two of her features at Clio from 5 to 7, which I watched a few years ago and thought was really fun, uh, even though the themes are a little bit dark. But the film itself is, is made really fun. It's your typical sort of French New Wave kind of film. And then I talked about it, I think, on the first episode of the podcast, La Bonheur. Yeah. That's, yeah. that's a masterpiece. That is an absolute masterpiece of a film. And that's another film that looks absolutely gorgeous. But is it, even though it looks nice and it leads you into the false sense of security, that it's a really nice, sweet film. The film is horrific. So <laughs> I, would, I would definitely recommend La Bonheur. Do you, I wonder if Mike Lee was influenced by her, because that's a lot of the ways that people describe a Mike Lee film, right? I have seen zero Mike Lee films. Oh, okay, that's fine. That's fine. Forget. It. Yeah, yeah. I just, I, you know. Anyways, I, he's he's kind of has some similar. Like, he covers like dark subject matter, but um, some of it's in in like a a more kind of jovial light. Although he has some just straight dark films as well. But um, the other, I was the reason I was asking about Varda though to begin with was, you know, we've seen two different members of the French New Wave now with the with the film club, uh, and relatively close together. And, you know, one of the things we were talking about uh, with Shoot the Piano Player was sort of like that anarchic kind of exciting sort of feel, like they're going to go create their own path. And I feel like the the story behind the making of Black Panthers, I really want to hear because just sort of the logistics of it to me were impressive. Like this was a very finite period of time where there was a small group of people, relatively small group of people in Oakland California protesting a prisoner who they felt was wrongly imprisoned. And there was a Belgian born French film director who got a small crew together and flew to Oakland and like captured this and then put it out as a short in 1968 when like travel wasn't like there was no Norwegian air where you could get like cheap international flights. So it's just like the logistics are just super interesting to me of like, you know, kind of how this came together. And like, I really love it. I feel like, this is well in that spirit of the kind of French new wave, like, yeah, that we've been talking about. Yeah, it's a niche subject for a French filmmaker. Obviously, if it was a California filmmaker, then you'd say, okay, it's pretty straightforward. But yeah, yeah for a French filmmaker, and Wikipedia has come to the rescue. Uh, I have the answer to you as to why. Well, I actually don't know. It doesn't say why, but it says, well, you know, how she was there. So uh, obviously, for those who don't know, Varda was married to Jacques Demi. Uh, the other sort of major French director. Um, so this is I'm reading this verbatim off Wikipedia right now. Varda and her crew shot the film in 1968 during her time in California while her husband Jacques Demy was in Hollywood working on a film called Model Shop. So she was in she was in Hollywood with, with her husband. So I assume she heard about it while she was there and then said, we got to go catch a flight up to Oakland. And, and film about this because it sounds great even if, if like again it doesn't go into too much detail so she may have already known about it but even if that's the case having that diy gorilla sort of tactic and you know t the idea to go and do this off the cuff if that is the case even that in itself is fantastic so i think either way you spin this story it's still good on varda to actually have made this film because whether she you know knew about it prior and said oh well jacques is going to hollywood i might as well go there too and you know, got up to Oakland to film about this, or when she heard about it while she was there and said, I got to go and film this now. Either way, it's a, I think it's a great story about how it was made. Um, I wanted to ask you guys, did you guys feel the, the narration was necessary? Or did it bother you guys at all or anything? It didn't bother me. It was just kind of weird. Yeah, it just, I, 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 I guess bother might be the wrong word. It's just, it's kind of flat. And I'm not even sure if the, what was narrated is 100% necessary. I feel like it could have been conveyed another way. 
yeah, with, and just gotten rid of it altogether. I was just curious. That was one of the things I noticed when I was watching it. I, I'm guessing she's the one who narrated it. That that would be my guess. I don't know what she sounds like, and I didn't pay attention to the credits. Yeah, actually, I don't know. Let me have a look. Actually, if it says who narrated it, I didn't actually even think to. To me, it sound the person sounded kind of American, though. Maybe I'm misremembering yeah. it. So maybe it wasn't Varda. But uh, yeah, I, I, I did it. It was definitely flat. It wasn't like. This wasn't a David Attenborough yeah. voiceover work, you know. It was definitely flat, and you know what they were saying was it was essentially pretty bare bones. I'm thinking maybe it was made for French audiences or European audiences. Yeah, and maybe the voiceover is necessary for the subtitles. Right. Yeah, I can maybe. see that. Maybe give I, more context. Yeah, just to give it a bit more of a context. Well, I'm glad that there was context because some of it did actually help me a bit. I'm just trying to see if I can find yeah, it. I'm on the IMDb page now. I don't see any talk about a narrator. Um, no? Um, at least yeah. not quickly. So I'm sure we could dig in with a little bit more research. But um, anyways. Yeah, I agree. It was definitely... The film could have done with either a different narrator or not a narrator at all. But I, again, I don't think it hurts it too much. I'm not going to take away too many marks. Yeah. I'm same. I, I guess it didn't bug me too much, but I, it's it's an interesting question. Uh, if I, I might, I'll probably watch it again uh, just out of curiosity now. So I'll I'll, I'll see. I'll pay attention to that. Yeah, when I'm watching, when I do my rewatch, when I can actually hear what the the guys are talking about on stage, I'll, uh, yeah, I'll I'll try and figure out what's going on if there is a if there is a a narrator credited at all. Okay, so welcome back to the third week of Collection Corner. Uh, this is one of my favorite segments. Uh, I, I actually did a total at the end of the year last year. Uh, and so 2020 for me was 20 years of collecting. And I, I crossed over about uh, 3,400 films over the, over the year. So uh, and that's individual titles. So if there's a box set with like 40 films, I count that 40 times, not one time. But uh, yeah, so I, you know, this is, uh, it, it was fun to kind of do a quick inventory and a account at the end of the year and get settled and uh, last week we went over uh, uh, the best of, and so I thought I'd keep it a little bit more uh, low key uh, this year. My Action USA came in; y'all be excited to know. Uh, and uh, Vinegar Syndrome's website is back up online now, and so the January pre-order uh, was was up. And it was a weird feeling to not have to do anything as a subscriber. Uh, I just got to say like, yeah, I would like those titles, uh, but but I'm, they're already on the way. So that's kind of a crazy feeling. I've never had anything like that before. So I'm excited for those to come in. Um, I have, uh, I'll, I'll share this one story with you all real quick. So are you familiar with the, the the masterpieces of Polish cinema set that Scorsese put together? There was only 200 put out and it was a, a blue, a white and a red box. Have you all ever heard of these? No, I, no, I haven't heard of that. So if you have all three of them, you can get about $2,000 on eBay. Um, and I found somebody was selling just the blue box, which was the first one for like 250 bucks. So I snatched it up and I'm actually trying to resell it. It's not going well. Um, but uh, in the meantime, I'm, I'm just about to start watching those. So I'm excited because this is sort of like, you know, these films are pretty elusive and that it's a cool story where they got 24 films together and toured the world as like a sort of an expo on Polish cinema uh, as sponsored by Martin Scorsese. And at the back end of that world tour, they put them out as three different box sets uh, in each highly limited editions. Um, so they're they're great for the hardcore collectors, but I, I can never uh, justify spending two thousand dollars on twenty four movies that might lead to a divorce. So, um, uh, but I, I found a good deal on one of them, and I'm excited. That I'm about to start those. It's actually I have the next one that's queued up for me is Roman Holiday, which is from the the Paramount Presents collection. I think I'm up to number seven or eight on that. I've been kind of going through it, and then the one after that is the first film, which is called Jump. So. I'm excited to dig into that and uh, super excited to have found it. What about y'all? Um, well, uh, sponsored by the U.S. Federal, federal government, I have been able to acquire uh, two movies. I haven't come in yet. I'm waiting for them to come from uh, England and South Korea. Uh, one of them is the Arrow Old Boy set, not the new one they have. It's the Vengeance trilogy with uh, that looks like an elevator. It opens up. Um, it looked nicer than the other one. So I was like, sure. Um, the other one I got was, uh, I've never ordered from this one, but it's, I'm actually trying to look up how you say it. Enjoygen. 
maybe. I probably butchered that completely if there is, happens to be anyone who speaks Korean uh, for The Wailing. Um, I actually have, I've seen the movie one time and I liked it, but I want to give it another shot because I, I felt like I got a little fatigued during it. So I just figured I'd go ahead and just blow more money than I needed to, to rewatch it. Um, but you know, stimulus check, so it's okay. Um, but those are the main two things I've got going on. Um, and then probably have to hold off for a while. Damn it, Zach. You're stimulating, uh, the UK and South Korea. I know. I'm completely doing it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> that's the wrong economy come on yeah, wrong one <laughs> um well for mine i'm not going to talk about one i've picked up because i only just got my region a play- player so i'm going to talk about some region a pickups next time because they'll hopefully have arrived by then <laughs> um so i'm going to talk about a, a set that's coming out that everyone knows about but i just want to talk about it because i don't think we've talked about it and it's the one car y set from that criterion is going to be releasing in March, I believe in the U S and April in, in region B. So I'm very excited for that. It has one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, uh, one car Y films, uh, as tears go by days of being wild chunking express, which we watched in the very, very first film club that we did many months ago. Uh, Fallen Angels, Happy Together, In the Mood for Love, and 2046. Uh, I've actually only seen three uh, One Car Wife films, uh, Chunking Express, which I love since we first watched it together, and I think about it all the time, and I've queued up a rewatch as part of the Criterion Challenge that's going on in Letterboxd this year, so I have that queued up for a rewatch in a couple of months. Um, I watched Falling Angels. I didn't quite like falling angels as much i couldn't i didn't really connect with the characters there they're kind of the antithesis of the two stories told in chunking express they're more so about outsiders uh they're, they're not really as engaging um i know some people love it i just didn't love it personally as much and then the first one car wife film that i saw about a year ago at this stage is uh, in the mood for love which is beautiful and fantastic and i hope i hope the colors aren't too vastly different as i remember them because the colors in that film are just amazing and um, so i'm i'm looking forward to getting that when it comes out it's it's going to be an instant buy for me as i know it will be for a lot of people as well um so which is why i wanted to talk about it um because obviously there's a few films in here well pretty much all of these you can't buy in region b there was a release of a few of them by artificial eye many years ago that are long out of print and cost you a lot of money on ebay so I'm glad to get a Blu-ray set of a lot of these because they just weren't available. So it'd be nice to go through them. Um, are you guys excited for that one? Are you are you on the one car white train? Um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna feel real ignorant when I ask this. Is that the one that people are kind of upset about because yeah. of the new color grade? Yes. Or is that is the one? Okay. I, I don't yes. know a whole. I've seen people kind of talk about it. Um, is it supposed to be a big difference with the color grading? It's not just color grading. It's he, he hasn't changed everything. So he changed color grading in some of the films, including In the Mood for Love, which is what's getting the biggest heat because the reds in that film are iconic. So the fact that he's changing it, is that's what's annoying some people. And he actually changed the aspect ratio of one of the other films. I can't remember which one it was in the set, but he didn't just color grade it. He changed the entire aspect ratio. So it's just going to look like a, a different film. Yeah. And the one thing that's annoying people most is not necessarily the changes. You know, he's the director. If he wants to go in and change something, if he's not happy with it, that's it's his art. You know, he can he has the right to do that. But what some what people are mostly annoyed about is that these are the new definitive versions and there's no it's not like the set's gonna include like the original release. Right. So for example, like Chunking Express, if he makes a major change to Chunking Express Unless you want to drop a bomb on eBay to get the out of print criterion, you're never gonna re- you're never gonna see that version again because this isn't confirmed. But we're assuming that once this gets released, the the versions that are on even the Criterion channel will also get updated along with it, which mm-hmm. tends to happen with these sets when they get released. Obviously, the entire Vardif set went up, the entire Bergman set went up, the entire Fellini set I think has gone up. So we assume that all the ones that are on the channel from One Car Y will also get updated with the stuff that's in the set as well. So 
I think that's that's annoying people more. Yeah, people are giving out about the color grading because they don't want their precious movie changed when they don't actually own it. It's the it's the, it's one car wise film. He's has the right to do what he wants. It's just the fact that they're going to be losing the original version is what's upsetting most people about it. Yeah, I guess you could argue that's kind of against the idea of preservation and the idea. Yeah. I guess if you want to go into death of the author, that once they release it, they no longer have ownership of it, which that's a huge debate anyway. Um, but yeah, I, I can kind of see that. Now I'm not a hundred. The, the only one I've seen is Chung Kang, um, and I like I love that one. I love it a lot. I need to check out his other stuff, but I've just heard a lot of. I haven't looked too much into it just because I've seen all the backlash from it in the last month. Yeah, there has been a lot of noise, which, which to be fair, and I think it's only because the set was so anticipated. Mm-hmm. Like, it's been the most wanted set for years now at this stage, especially because, you know, with with films going out of print from um, the original releases, people just wanted to have this set so they can own them. eBay, eBay prices, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. So I think it's... I don't know. I think people are kind of a bit bitter about it now, seeing the I changes. If... I personally, I'm still going to buy it. I'm still going to like it. It doesn't really bother me too much. I am definitely, I, I definitely see what you mean. You know, as in, you know, once you once you release something to the world, do you really own it? It's definitely a big debate. I personally don't mind him going in and changing stuff. If directors didn't change stuff, we would never have the final cut of Blade Runner. Right. So, you know, I I don't mind directors going in and maybe tweaking things if they're not happy with the end product you know for if they couldn't you know make a change you know if they couldn't do it at the time for whatever reason and it's not their original vision just because it became iconic doesn't mean that the director's original vision may have changed they might want to actually make it how they originally envisioned the film but they couldn't do it for whatever constraints yeah i so so real quick i i i I did pre-order it actually from criterion directly so i'm very excited about it and i've I've probably seen six or seven one car wide films i don't actually know how many features he directed but it's not that many more than that um yeah i think it's missing maybe three or i I don't know for sure i know one of them called the grand master is not in there his american film blueberry nights i think it's called is not in there I think maybe one or two more are missing. Um, it seems as though he's basically this is just the ones that Criterion had originally released as single discs, right? Uh, and they basically put it into a set rather than any sort of films they've never released before. I could be wrong. I'm not the expert, but from what I can tell, that's what it is essentially. Yeah, uh, I, I'm curious on this idea of preservation really quick before we jump into the next segment. Do, have y'all have y'all seen the uh, director's cut of Godfather Three? Have any have either of y'all seen that yet? I own it and I haven't watched it yet. Oh, okay. <laughs> I'm curious to watch that now because it's supposed to be. That's the collector's catchphrase. I own it, but I haven't seen it yet. <laughs> <laughs> but um, I'm I'm curious about it. Um, the only thing that it's I'm kind of worried about is, and I, I don't blame Sophia Coppola as much as a lot of people do because, I mean, she was put in a bad situation, but you just can't fix that. Even with a new edit, you can't fix that. So. I'm hoping it's a, it's a big upgrade, but I just don't think it's ever going to still reach one or two. All right, and now we're going to talk about Sergio Leone's Once Upon a Time in the West. Um, to start this one, let's do Adam. Damn. <laughs> no, uh, this film this film's great. It's a it's a really really great film. I'm always worried when I watch films or I decide to watch a film of this stature. Um, because you're always afraid, you know, it's never going to live up to the hype. And a lot of the time I watch these kind of films and they don't live up to the hype. There's been a, a very few that that have. And, and this one does live up to the hype. I do definitely think it deserves to be called a masterpiece. I don't think it's perfect. And I'll get into that. Uh, there's there's a little, a few little things that kind of didn't really sit right with me in terms of some of the pacing, which for the most part is impeccable. Um, and some of the story, which for the most part is, is kind of cool. Um, but the film, in terms of its technical aspects and how it was constructed, is an absolute marvel. The set design, the cinematography, the editing, everything is just is just ridiculous. You know, some of the sets in this film, they must have been meticulously built and constructed, you know, to, to give the Old West setting. Um, so I, I loved it. It's not quite a 10 out of 10 for me, um, but but I did love it. And yeah, I think I think Chris, you, you you probably love this film. This, this seems like the film you kind of, the kind of film that you'd love. 
Yeah, I mean, I know, I know that Zach, we're a little bit on the opposite ends here. So, do you want to hear a positive or a negative view first? <laughs> How do y'all want to go? Yeah, no, I definitely want to hear the positives, and then I want to hear Zach's negatives, and then I want to be able to agree with Zach, <laughs> then also kind of go back on it a bit. So, uh, I'm gonna—I promise I'm gonna tie this right back into the movie. But here in the U.S., college football is really big, right? For in a lot of, especially kind of in the South, and and maybe even NFL is really big football here, and like. The coaches get a lot of credit, right? But really, like for these teams to win, it's the assistant coaches and the team around the head coach that's able to like develop a winning team, right? Like the coach is kind of the one putting the pieces together and like designing the the, the team that's going to win. And that's how I felt about Once Upon a Time in the West. So like, just so y'all know, if y'all ever want to try to date me or court me, this is the kind of movie that I want to have on a movie night together. Uh, uh, like I'm in. Uh, and like... This is, it's, it's the perfect blend for me of like sort of the campiness of a spaghetti Western, but with the masterclass of like technical back end that, that makes it story work on like multiple levels. Like just if you think about written by story by Dario Argento, Bernardo Bertolucci, uh, and then Sergio Leone, and then directed by Sergio Leone, cinematography by Tonino Della Conte, and then Ennio Morricone doing the sound, like, the all-star cast that was together, like, can you just imagine being in the room as they were discussing this movie? It's just like each individual piece is sort of like, like you know, they're going to have their own statue on the, on the, or their, in, in their own kind of like Lifetime Achievement Award or whatever you want to say that. But like, they, this is something where they all came together and they, their heads were down and they made this like masterful Italian Western uh, that was four years after the one that Leone made that kind of made this whole genre, right? Of spaghetti Westerns. And this one had the backing of the U S the Paramount pictures came in and I gave them some extra money to do it. And so it was just sort of like this perfect blend for me of like, not only was it this beautiful sort of campy piece, but it was on a grand scale and like masterfully created and, and, and put together. So I, I'm tempted to put it in my top five ever, like, but there's just, Every time I want to do that, I go back and I, I rewatch like Discreet Charm and the Bourgeoisie, and I'm like, no, nothing's better than this. But like, like this is like knocking on the door. Like I can't, I, I just, yeah, like this is beautiful to me. All right, I guess I get to be the bad guy here. <laughs> no, uh, I, I do want to know before I get started. I absolutely do enjoy this movie. I, my criticisms mostly come from loving about everything Sergio Leone's even done. I mean, I'm the type of guy that still watches Colossus of Rhodes and that movie's not good, but I still watch it just because I think Sergio Leone is such a talented director. And this has this epic scale of um, Duck You Sucker or the other 40 names that movie's called, The Good and the Bad and the Ugly, uh, Once Upon a Time in America, which he made after this. Um, the scale, all that's great. It brings in the beautiful cinematography that he is absolutely known for. The score is great because, you know, it's Ennio Morcani. It's going to be awesome. Henry Fonda casted against type is perfect. Um, you know, that was pretty much the pitch of the movie was, you know, seeing Henry Fonda shoot a kid. Um, first thing <laughs> in the movie to introduce him. And that, that all that is so brilliant. What it loses for me is something that's so common in the rest of Sergio Leone's films, which is the chemistry between the characters. I mean, when you think of the good and the bad and the ugly, you think of um, the man with uh, Blondie and Tuco, or you think of um, uh, their character, uh, Lee Van Cleese's character and Clint Eastwood's character in um, For a Few Dollars More. And I don't have that here. And I, you know, I know a lot of people talk about that this is their favorite Charles Bronson role, and it I can't find it for me. I don't know why, but like I'm just never really interested in his character the whole time. Um, I think it's like this idea that he has all the makings of someone who wants to be mysterious, but for me, it comes off as more uninteresting. He just isn't that interesting to me. Um, Henry Fonda's uh, character, Frank, is awesome. Uh, I'm every time he's off screen, I want to see more of him. And the harmonica stuff, it just doesn't doesn't do it for me. Um, it's it's one of those films that that is like the key ingredient. Like Chris, you talked about like the campiness and the pulpiness. Um, that's something that I love about the Dollars trilogy. It has that 
yeah. little bit more pulpiness to it. Like I, I feel like this, and maybe that's my bias because I'm more of a pulp. I like pulp. You know, <laughs> that's just how I like my films. Um, and it's missing a little bit of that for me. It's missing that chemistry um, because I don't find uh, the, I can't think of her name, but the girl played Jill. Hi, I don't hi. find her, I find her kind of bland as well. And I don't want to, because I think her story is interesting. I think it's a cool setup that I don't think gets very paid off for me. Um, but so that, that that's every time I talk about Once Upon a Time in the West, it's always, it's a good film that's so close to being great for me. And it just sort of misses the mark. I'm in the same boat as you, but for slightly different reasons. I agree in some respect to Harmonica, um, Charles Bronson's character. He does just come across as just a little bit awkward for me throughout the film. Um, uh, Claudia Cardinale, who was who was who played Jill, I thought she I thought she was she was pretty good. I had no issues with her. Um, but yeah, in terms of the character dynamics, none of the characters really have a dynamic with each other. Like they don't really have any chemistry with each other. I don't really like. There's that wild card character played by Jason Jason Robards. Yeah. Um, Cheyenne. Yeah. I don't really know what his purpose is throughout the whole film. He's just kind of in there, and and I don't. <laughs> it's going to sound like an insult, but like Chris, who likes to enjoy a meandering story, so does Dario Argento. Um, Dario Argento is is infamous for me with his meandering subplots that kind of go nowhere and are there just to fill out the film. And I feel like the middle hour of this film is just full of Argento. I, I wouldn't be surprised if Argento wrote the bulk of the middle of this film because so much of it just sort of, it's just kind of there. Like the one, the one scene that I just don't get, and maybe I miss something, but I just don't get the scene where she's selling the land. I don't get, I don't, I don't, I don't remember seeing any setup for the scene. I don't remember, like, random people are bidding. Are they part of Frank's gang? I don't remember seeing these guys before. Uh, Harmonica now, is he working with Cheyenne? Is that part of their plan? And then it just kind of goes nowhere. In the end, it doesn't matter. They're just back to building the railroad again. It's just this weird random 20 minutes in the film that just seems so out of place and just it, it kills the film dead, which for a film which is nearly three hours long. And I said this before we started watching it, I was kind of dreading this one being picked because it's so long. I didn't know how I was going to fit it into my day. Luckily enough, I was super quiet and work that week. And I actually watched it while I was working, just pausing it every now and again. Um, but uh, the pacing of this film in the first hour and the last 45-ish minutes, the pacing is incredible. For a film that has a setup that takes like 35 minutes to actually get to the setup of the film, it actually breezes by. You don't even really realize how long you know how how far into the film you've gotten by the time by the time claudia cardinale film a character comes into the film we're a good half an hour in if i remember correctly mm-hmm. so like the setup is takes a long time to get in but it goes by so quickly because of the way that leone directs it and the way it's edited that it creates so much tension um so for a film that has so much great things to say about pacing that middle hour is just a pointless slog and it just could have been cut to ribbons on it shouldn't have even made it to celluloid it should have just been cut in the in the writing room i wonder if it's the the combination of taking leone who isn't a efficient filmmaker i don't think anyone would accuse sergio of being efficient with how he is he takes his time he's he and you like you said his pacing's always great but the guy takes his time and then you take someone like argento who does whatever he whatever you call what he does meandering i think was your word and that seems to be kind of where i'm at with you when it comes to pacing that middle part because i do agree with you completely the the beginning and end great pacing wise but yeah it's almost like that combination of them twos kind of doesn't benefit either one of them so uh not to disagree with y'all but just to just for the sake of a discussion here I actually the, like. I don't think the characters were one dimensional, right? So, like Henry Fonda's character uh, Frank, I thought he sort of wanted to to be like a legit businessman, right? Like he kind of mm-hmm. wanted to get out of the uh, of the of the gang, uh, the the criminal lifestyle, right? And and kind of become like you know he he kept looking uh, longingly at that uh, uh, I forget the character's name, but he was on a train all the time and he had that nice desk. And he, you know, was like a, the person who owned the money, not the guns, right? And he kind of wanted to to get that. Like, I think he saw that as like the money controls the guns, not the other way around. And and I felt like he wanted that. And so the the auction scene, 
for me, it was like him convincing his gang to silence anybody who was trying to auction the property off so they could get it for a low price because they knew it was on the land. Um, right. And that's why, like, it was such a big deal when Charles Bronson came in and bid, I think it was $5,000 when the current bid was like 300 or 400 or something because that ruined like their whole plan. Right. He wanted to try to buy cheap and then sell high. Um, Jason Robard's character. I loved that. I think he was great. Like talk about uh, going against type. Like here's this character actor. He's been in like a lot of kind of, you know, Academy Award winning movies as like a minor role. And, uh, and he comes out in, in this sort of, I think his character kind of goes through the biggest arc in a way, like, or, or the, maybe the most interesting sort of character where he's sort of not good or bad. He sort of can, can go on either side of the law, depending on which one he sees as like the winning side. And he's just kind of sneaky and like, you know, he's like, like he, he just sort of like assesses what's going on and then, and then chooses his, his cart in the horse or his, his cart in the race, whatever his horse in the race, whatever that saying is. Um, and then you have the harmonica player, uh, or harmonica character who's so singular in his purpose, but like, we don't really ever find out what that is. Right. Like one of the questions I had, cause I hadn't seen this in probably 15 years or so. One of the questions I had was like, what's motivating this character? Right. Because like he, he seems to sort of be good natured, but, but at the same time, he's like, so kind of sketchy. He's a great, like kind of anti-hero. And then you have that one flash, like right in the last gun scene where you see like what's been driving him all these years. Um, and you know, maybe it's not perfect writing. Like they don't really explain it beyond that. Like why this, why now? Like, you know, why is he just coming up with Frank now? Like whatever. So it's not perfect writing, but like, yeah, like you have these three characters that are sort of motivated very, um, distinctly and for me like the story the the way that it kind of meandered through that and the the pacing never really felt slow because it was like you have these three arcs that were happening at the same time and even when everything is silent like i'm thinking of the scene where uh, Car uh claudia cardinale is driving towards the ranch before she finds out that her family's dead and she stops in that saloon and that's the first time that she kind of meets frank like in that saloon there's so much silence in that scene, like deafening silence in that scene, right? But the suspense is kept so high because of like the sound effects and the way that uh, the angles are shot and like the eyebrows, like the focus on the eyebrows of people that are watching. And so like you have enough of that kind of always going on where I feel like there's never really a dull moment. And and they, they wove these three character stories together in a way that, I don't know, it worked for me. Uh, uh, I just loved it. <laughs> I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna fight you on your point because obviously everyone's entitled to it. I'm just gonna talk about something that you brought up there towards the end, which I spoke to you briefly about, and that's the sound design in this film, which is another thing. Obviously, we're gonna talk about Marconi's score. Its score is amazing. It it jumps between so many different genres. It's it's really really. Like I always thought that Marconi did his best work in 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 Giallo movies. I always loved his Giallo scores, mm -hmm. but I think this one is probably now my favorite. Um, but the sound design in this film is incredible. You know, in that sort of opening scene where Frank's gang killed the family, the deafening silence when the when I think the grasshoppers or locusts or whatever when they stop, and it's just this deafening silence before the gunshots start is just incredible sound design. It was, yeah, it, it's the one time silence really affected me in a film because it was just because you were you know in this scene you were just hearing you know those sort of natural sounds. You know, just in the background, you were just they were just ingrained into the scene. As soon as they stop, it's just like it just builds so much tension. And this film did a really good job of building tension through its sound design, which mm -hmm. a lot of which is really integral when you're building a tense scene. Especially, mostly horror fans will know this how integral sound is to to building tension. Um, but this film did a really really good job of building tension through its sound design as well. Well, one thing I'm happy to hear, because I know you haven't, like, watched a ton of spaghetti westerns. I think before we talked, you watched um, the Dollars trilogy. Mm -hmm. So one thing that I know bothers a lot of people is the gun sounds, because they're a little, I don't know if hokey is the right word, but they're uh, a lot of pew, pew, and a lot, it bothers a lot of people. Um, but I'm glad to hear it didn't, because I, I, I'm so, I've watched them my whole life, so I don't even think about it anymore. But I know for a lot of people, it, like, instantly sets them off. I don't really know what a gun sounds like in real life because we don't have guns in Ireland. So uh, that probably helps as well. <laughs> <laughs> I only know movie guns, so. <laughs> <laughs>
Um, this is unrelated, but if you want a good uh, Morcani score, go for uh, the mission. And strangely, his uh, score for um, The Exorcist 2 is fantastic. It's the only good part of that movie. Nice. Cannot say, cannot say I've seen Exorcist 2. Just Although... find the soundtrack. You don't need to watch it. <laughs> <laughs> cool. So do we have any other points on this film then? Are we happy to... This is a minor one, I guess, but I thought it was kind of interesting. Have you all ever heard of a film called Contamination? It's not a Leone film. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, a, it's another Italian movie that came out. And, and there's this interesting trend that started that Leone kind of sort of started. I mean, because people give him credit for starting spaghetti westerns and Italian westerns. Um, but there's another trend that he started, which is probably less glamorous, which is stealing IP. <laughs> so, like... Yeah. I, you know, like they actually, uh, Toho Studios actually had to sue him to give him credit to, for Yujimbo uh, for, for a few dollars more. Um, and it's this interesting trend in Italian cinema. So contamination is a loose but very close ripoff of Alien. <laughs> um, uh, and it's a fantastic campy film. But there's a, there's a big history of Italian filmmakers and studios sort of just basically taking good stories they were successful in other countries and remaking them <laughs> in italy uh and leone was one of the first ones to do that and it's an interesting uh yeah you know part of history here uh that he gets he doesn't get enough credit for <laughs> well uh it's kind of like um zombie which it used to, i guess it used to be called zombie to flesh eaters or whatever but it's pretty much supposed to be a indirect sequel to dawn of the dead <laughs> like unofficially those crafty Italians. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, if there's nothing else, I just thought it'd be interesting to, to, to chat about the year 1968. Um, so if you can imagine, like, Agnes Varda is filming in California, filming or with her husband who's filming a movie and decides to take a crew away to go film Black Panthers. In Spain, there's this random crew with money from Paramount filming... Uh, an Italian-produced movie <laughs> of Once Upon a Time in the West. And then you also have 2001 from Kubrick, Steve McQueen doing Bullet and the Thomas Crown Affair, speaking of the zombie movies, Night of the Living Dead, the original Planet of the Apes, Hour of the Wolf from Bergman. It's just like, as I was looking into this, I was like, man, like, what a crazy year. So I, I was kind of, I got to thinking about this a little bit. And like, you know, the war ended pretty much for good in 1945, right? That was like the Second World War. Yeah, 45. 45. So we're, we're like 23 years after that. So a lot of people that were either born or like really young as the war ended and like the whole world was just sort of, or at least Europe and the U.S. was kind of, you know, in, impoverished for a while and just sort of looking their wounds for a while. And you have this generation coming out of that and just like this cre- creative explosion. I, I think it's. I think it's awesome. I, anyway, I really love like this connection, and, and it's kind of a fun theme between the two movies here. Yeah, well, what jumps out to me from that list is it's really a, a poster for the diversity of cinema and how different films can be as an art form. You know, whether it's having a ragtag crew filming a racial you know, incident in California, or it's a huge budget action Western movie, or whether it's something like Hour of the Wolf, where it's a, a very sort of small, personal, psychologically driven black and white film. You know, it's, yeah, it, it really attests to the diversity of cinema as an art form, you know, that all those all those films that you listed. So that's definitely a, a, it's a cool point to bring up about the, about the year 1968 and I suppose, you know, cinema in general. Yeah. I love it. And anyways, yeah. So it's that was that was all I really had to say on it. I just... It just really struck me that you couldn't find two more different films, uh, and uh, and yet they're so excellent. So uh, now we lead out with any other business. It's just a section at the end where we just talk about something that we've watched, uh, you know, a film, not necessarily even Criterion related, that we enjoyed, and we want to just give a shout out to. Uh, I'm going to book the trend this week, and I'm not going to actually talk about a, a film I watched, but instead I'm going to talk about a, a book about film. Um, which I think is absolutely fantastic. Uh, I got the book for Christmas. Uh, my girlfriend got it for me. It's called The Story of Film uh, by a Northern Irish guy called Mark Cousins, who's a film historian and a, and a director. Um, you might be familiar with the name, The Story of Film, because there was a, a limited documentary series made uh, 
after the book was released. It's basically like a documentary of the book, which is called Story of Film and Odyssey, which is uh, loads of places online. There's a, you can find it really easily if you want to watch it. But the book is really, really great. If, if you want to talk about film school condensed to like six, seven hundred pages, this is it. It's so in-depth, but also it's really, it's really written from a perspective of someone who loves what he does. It's not overly technical. It's, it's not overly complicated. Anyone can really read this book and learn from it. But at the same time, you know, it's, it's not, stuff's not going to go over your head when you're reading it. Mark Cousins really does love cinema as an art form and loves the story that it tells, not just, you know, in the films themselves, but the story of film and how it develops and how each filmmaker and movement is, is sort of, you know, influenced by the previous one to really give a sense of how in-depth this book is. I've been reading it in the evenings uh, before I go to bed, and I've, I've just surpassed page 100, and we've only now just gotten to German Expressionism. <laughs> so this is how in-depth the, the book is in terms of its history. Uh, but it, it does jump around quite a bit. So like in the previous chapter where it was talking about silent comedies and we were talking about Safety Last, which is an, a film that I watched this week and I thought was hilarious. Um, but it was talking about Safety Last, and it didn't just talk about Safety Last. It said, and you can see from Safety Last, it was in, it influenced this and that, and eventually, you know, we can see its influence in Back to the Future, where where Doc is hanging off the the, the tower or the city hall. He's hanging yeah. off the clock in City Hall, which is basically taken from Safety Last. So it doesn't just it doesn't do everything linearly it will it'll talk about a film or a movement and then it will it will kind of meander i suppose the the phrase of the day it will kind of meander and talk about you know what 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 was then influenced by that but it still tells tells a cohesive story um there was a new edition of it released just in october which was an updated edition because I, I believe the original was written nearly 10 years ago this is an updated edition which takes into account how big digital has gotten now even like you know the streaming world talks about streaming and how important that's been in film and is in the sort of wider story and history of film so uh, that's my shout out of the day the story of film by mark cousins you can pick it up on amazon for like 20 bucks or so it's a really good investment it's for any film lover it's just it's just a love letter to film and it's incredible friend of the podcast mark cousins friend of the podcast mark cousins my, my pal from up the north <laughs> Uh, wow, that's fantastic! I actually probably will get that. I appreciate the heads up. Are you going to link the 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 link in Amazon so we get uh, millions of dollars? Uh, yeah, maybe. I, I'm gonna I'm gonna shout out to Mark Cousins as well. Tell him we're, we're talking about it, and he'll big us up, and we'll be millionaires by the time the episode's out a week. <laughs> um, so I've been talking. Actually, this is the second time now. I'm going to talk about Arbello's films. So the last time I did, I was very depressed because Belladonna of Sadness just like wrecked me. Uh, I'm going I'm to talk about something like on the complete opposite end of the spectrum. So I got through it. I'm, I'm through the first, the only seven films they put out. Uh, then the eighth one is going to be Satan Tango that comes out, I think, in January or February. But uh, it's this wild movie. So do you all remember a film in the 90s called Detroit Rock City? I'm going to have to say no to that one. Okay. That not, I thought that was a Kiss song. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. And the movie basically about four teenagers that want to go see a Kiss concert, right? It's like a little kind of silly, sort of unique, like, movie. I, I mean, I liked it, actually, but it's like a very kind of small budget. Anyways, whatever. It's it just this, this film that came out about a love for Kiss. So one of the ch the children actors in that movie who plays sort of like maybe a high school age kid was this guy named Giuseppe Andrews, who was living in his dad, living in a van with his dad most of his childhood. And his dad was a former like backup musician for the Bee Gees. And uh, anyways, they kind of fell on hard times. And just by a weird stroke of Hollywood luck, he, he got into one commercial and then another movie and then another movie and then had like a brief starring role in Detroit Rock City. And then it was in like maybe five or six total films or somewhere around there, including a small role in Independence Day. And then they went back to living in basically a van, like a trailer park. Like there's no success story. Like he got crippled with anxiety, didn't want to be an actor. And the what he took from his brief sort of, you know, experience with Hollywood was that he wanted to make films. So all that he had was a camera and a relationship with this guy named Adam Rifkin, who was the director of Detroit Rock City and has gone on to do maybe 20, 30 films. And uh, so what he does is he creates these films and he has like his cast of players that, that are just other homeless people or, or people that maybe live in trailers 
uh, or on the streets around him in uh, L.A. area. And he makes these really crude kind of trauma films, basically, like if you're all familiar with trauma studios. I think maybe one or two of them are even put out by trauma. But so what Arbelos did, or this company called Cinelicious Picks, which Arbelos distributed, is they picked up this documentary that the director of Detroit Rock City, Adam Rifkin, kept in touch with this Giuseppe guy. And about 20, uh, 10 movies into his career, he actually sent a documentary crew down there, like three people, to film the making of Giuseppe's 10th film. And so what it is, what it winds up being is a, is a documentary about the making of this low-budget film. They make it for $1,000. It's a two-day shoot. And uh, it's this, what winds up happening on the screen is this lovely, like affectionate story of this guy who has never really left the trailer park, but he had a brief flirt with Hollywood and his other cast of players that are like the, the, um, what do they call the food cart for them? Like the, um, on movie sets, what do they call the, the, you know, like the, when they set up all the food and snacks and catering. stuff. Yeah. Like the catering, the, yeah, whatever. Like catering is literally booze. Like, they, they buy booze for the actors in this movie. That's like the whole catering for them. Uh, and it's this, it's this beautiful sort of like loving, you know, 30 something year old guy that is not uh, objectifying or, or, or is like taking advantage of this homeless folks. Like he's actually kind of giving them a chance to be in movies. And like, it's just kind of weird, like crazy world, but it's like this really sweet redemptive story for the five or six people that are in all of his movies. And, you know, like he he knows that like this one guy is typically around this intersection, kind of in the weeds, and he has a sleeping bag, and he'll go pick him up, and he'll bring him on set for three days, and the guy makes fifty bucks. But like, what happens in the in the film is that he's like he comes alive for those two days, and he has he gets treated as a person, and these movies are like shown at film festivals, uh, you know, underground film festivals. But still, like he's a star for like two days, and you get to see the impact that Giuseppe's had on these folks around him. And it's this really quirky and sweet story. I loved it. Like, I, I, I just really loved it. And it was, uh, I, I want to try to talk about this film a little bit to try to get it out there because it's, it's called Giuseppe Makes a Movie. I don't think I meant to mention that. Um, and the DVD actually, or the Blu-ray release from Arbello's has uh, quite a few number of his shorts as well as some of the special features, uh, including the 10th film that he, that, that he filmed uh, in the making of. But yeah, that's it for me. It was, it was a fun watch. I just watched it last night and I couldn't believe how sweet it was. I might have to check that out. That sounds different for sure. It sounds pretty interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I really liked it. Okay. Uh, for me, I'm going to go for something a little bit more recent. Uh, have you guys ever watched the movie Frequency? Ooh, no. Let me look at that real quick. Okay. Uh, this isn't, that's not the one I'm going to talk about, but it's the closest one I can kind of think of it. Basically, this would be the South Korean answer to that 17 years later. But essentially what it's about, it's about this um, girl. She's moving back into her childhood home. This takes place in 2019. Um, her father passed away when she was a kid and her mother currently has cancer. So she's moving back there and she keeps getting these like weird phone calls about this girl who sounds like she's being abused. She's asking for help. And she finally asks her what her address is. And it turns out it's the exact same address that she's currently living in. And so what she's able to finally piece together is that while she is answering the phone in 2019, the person on the other end of the phone is from 1999. It's the person who lived there right before her. So they kind of begin to have this like sort of relationship. Um, obviously, one's going through a lot of grief. The other one is going through this tremendous amount of abuse. And they start kind of trying to figure out how they can kind of help each other. It's not by any stretch of the imagination anything overly unique. These type of stories have been done before. What I really enjoyed about this one is I will think it, from what I've seen of this sort of subgenre, this is one of the stronger ones of it. Um, the effects of it are fantastic. Um, it's very gory. So if you're not into that, I wouldn't recommend it. But in South Korea, they seem to like about as much brutal violence as they can get in some of these movies. And I think it's fantastic for me. Um, but it takes a lot of different twists and turns. I will say if I have like one slight criticism with it, don't think about it too hard or you'll kind of break the movie. Um, it's a little bit more of a fun time. This isn't like high end art cinema, but I think it's a lot of fun and it's currently, it's called the call. It's there's two 
movie's called The Call in 2020. So this is the one that's in South Korea, not the one that was made in the U.S. But it was originally supposed to come out in like March. It got picked up by Netflix um, a couple months ago because of the whole COVID thing. But I, I think it because of that, it didn't get the theatrical stuff it was supposed to internationally. And I think it kind of got lost in the shuffle with everything coming out the end of the year, especially on Netflix with like Mank and um, a couple other things. So um, that's my recommendation. If you want some kind of cool sci-fi horror fantasy sort of thing, it's it's a pretty good time. So a sci-fi horror remake of The Lake House. Is yeah, what yeah, this film yeah. Is. Okay, that's cool. that's that would be a, that's another one. I forgot about the lake house. <laughs> that's that's the that's the first thing that came to my mind when you said like cross time communication. The lake house is doing the first thing that came into my mind. Frequency has always been mine, but I think it's because I was a Garth Brooks fan as a kid, and there's a ton of his music in that movie. <laughs> <laughs> I think the lake house coming to my head probably says a lot more about me than it does for anyone else. The fact that I even <laughs> remember the lake house. <laughs> I think I more so remembered from Family Guy sketches about the lake house rather than the actual <laughs> film itself. Is it the Keanu Reeves one? Yeah, Keanu Reeves and, and Sandra Bullock, I believe. It's either Sandra Bullock or Hilary Swank. I always mix them up. It's yeah, one of those I think two. It's, if it's not, whichever one it's not, I think he played in with the other one in like Walk Among the Clouds. So I think he's played with both of them, but I don't know which one's which. Sandra it's, Bullock for that one. Yeah. It's, it's early 2000s. Come on. The, the, that's like saying, you know, we could do a six degrees of, like everyone says six degrees of Kevin Bacon. You could definitely do a six degrees of uh, of Sandra Bullock easily. Yeah. <laughs> She's been in so much stuff with so much people. It's not hard. That's so true. I could probably do six degrees myself with Sandra Bullock. <laughs> <laughs> and that wraps up this week's episode of They Live By Film. You can catch uh, me, Chris, and Zach on our Letterboxd or Reddit accounts, uh, the links of which will be in the description. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at They Live By Film. Until next time, take care.